you'd be interested to hear that if you type in, in, in Google the, quote, the most misused tool, you'd be surprised that it's not a, a chainsaw, as I hope, or maybe a jackhammer or, or, or a circular saw. Because I was thinking, you know, what's, what's a common tool that we use that is completely misused? And I was thinking kind of gory, you know, limbs flying off and things like that. And you'd be shocked to hear it's nothing as dangerous as I thought. Actually, it is probably the most well-known tool, the most uh, common tool that we use. And according to the quick Google research and the quick headlines that I saw consistently was the most misused tool is the screwdriver. I was partially disappointed. Again, I was kind of hoping for limbs flying everywhere. But needless to say, I, I was shocked. But as I began to think and read and think through it, I'm like, this will make sense. The most probably famous tool that we know of is a hammer, and there's some misuses, but there's that screwdriver you don't really think about. There's probably several in your junk drawer right now. You have probably countless in your toolbox. But the thing is that this tool that we have a plethora of, that we get every time we, we purchase a piece of furniture to put together, it only has one purpose. It has one simple purpose, and one purpose alone. It's not to dig weeds out of your yard, as I've used it. It's not to uh, chip away the excess concrete on your garage floor, which I've attempted. It's not to, uh, to remove the excess grout that is on your bathroom tile, which, again, I've done. It's simply to tighten or loosen a screw. It almost seems kind of purposeless now, this little object that has been engineered and made, but it is, it's significant because as the articles I, I briefly read kept saying either one, if you use it improperly, you're going to either chip it and it might break, it actually might, the shaft might break or you might chip the head where now it can't do its sole job to simply tighten or, or loosen a screw, or even worse, you might damage the thing that you're trying not to damage, as you're chipping away, you might you know, dig a hole and make a divot into your garage floor that you weren't intending because you used the wrong tool. The ground, you might make a, a, deep, a bigger hole as you're trying to dig up that weed. You might remove more grass than you intended. Or you might actually chip and break the tile, that fragile little tile that's in your bathroom that you hope doesn't break, so then all of a sudden it's no longer waterproof. The purpose is, if we misuse a tool like that, we're in danger of, of make, causing harm that we didn't intend. And that's what can happen with the Bible, with Scripture, is that we don't use the verses properly in, in their proper context. We will cause damage that we did not intend. In today's verse, today's passage, I should say, that was just read by Chris, is probably one of the most misused verses in Scripture. And it has caused countless damage. And its damage is more widespread and more harmful than we, we can imagine. And so, with this text, what we don't want to do is to misapply it and cause Damage that we did not intend, or maybe too intend. And so let's together as a church 
turn to Matthew chapter 7 as we study these next six verses on the Sermon on the Mount. As we, you know, Jesus begins to open the landing gear to his sermon, and that landing gear for us will land actually toward the end of the year, we need to take heed of what he's saying because the, the, the landing is probably one of the most, most important part of his sermon. I'm just going to forewarn you, and then coming weeks, and particularly the last four weeks, Jesus' landing gear makes a very hard landing that is going to challenge us. And it begins with this text. As we, before we, we read, I want to give us some context in, in mind. Remember what Jesus is doing. Jesus is countering the false theology of his day. Uh, the false theology of the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. The false theology that has twisted what was good about God's law. And the added commentaries and rules and laws that piled on, that missed the meaning, that missed the heart. So that's what Jesus is attacking in the Sermon on the Mount, including our text this morning. So we have to understand people are doing the opposite of what Jesus is saying. And it's not just some nice, pithy statement that we can put on our coffee mugs. Not sure why you put this text on your coffee mug, but I digress. But remember where we came from. In chapter 6, Jesus attacks the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And that, and that theme continues. It's not maybe as coherent but it, or connected, but it is connected as a whole. And he's attacking the self-righteousness of, of man, of, our, of ourselves here. Because why do we judge? Because we're self-righteous. But also, where, where is this going? As you kind of glance down at verse 12, you're going to see a little headline in your Bible, the golden rule. And so this is where we are going in the next couple weeks. And Pastor Hayden will touch on verse 12 next week. But just have in mind of this golden rule. So whatever you wish, in verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so what judging does and this unrighteous judging is not fulfilling the law as they thought they were doing. But also how to do what you want other people to do to you. It's like, well, I want to judge in a manner that if I judge someone else, I would want them to judge me. And so that's where we're going, but I'm going to let Pastor Hayden touch on that next week. And so as we study this text, let's keep this in mind. Misapplying and disregarding this passage will lead to a pain of unaddressed or overbearing sin, which damages the reputation of God among the nations. Us misapplying this text will damage God's reputation to the nations that we're trying to reach. Our unrighteous judgment, as Jesus is going to talk about in just a moment, damages God's reputation. How, hard, how much harder is our evangelism? Because either we or fellow brothers or professing brothers and sisters in Christ judge wrongly. Or we, when we misapply this, thinking this removes all judgment from the table, how much damage do we do to God's reputation of not addressing the sin that needs to be addressed? And so here's the main point before we read this text together. The main point is, as you're going to see, is to stop playing God in our condemnation of other people's sin. Stop playing God. 
but instead humbly submit to his standard and his instruction so that you can address other people's sins correctly. What Jesus is going to focus on is going to be the condemnation of doing something wrong, but the implication is how to do it right. And so without, without further ado, what does Jesus have for us? Let's begin in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be, it will be measured to you. What you don't know is, for many of you, if you don't have your Greek Bible in front of you, is that essentially right here, as I like to say it this week, Jesus is rapping right now. And you have no idea. And so you see, judge not, do not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce. And right there is where you need to know your Greek, because that word pronounce is the same rooted Greek word of the word judge. That word, you know, krino is the word judge here in this text. And so really, if I read it in the, you know, the raw translation, it's like, judge not that you not be judged, for the judgment you judge, you will be judged. Do you see how it's a little play on words right there? A little play on words that's supposed to impact us? And furthermore, as you continue to read in verse 2, with the measure you use, it will be used, uh, it will be measured to you. Now, again, if you had your Greek Bible, the, you see where it says use it is, trans, is the same Greek word for measure. So really, it's like with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And so you kind of see this little play on words that Jesus is doing about judging and measuring to emphasize a, a simple point. Don't judge incorrectly. Don't judge unrighteously. Now this is where things just get derailed. People not slowing down to, to wrestle through what is Jesus even talking about. Because it seems blatantly clear to in the initial reader, it says Jesus is ex- excluding all judging. When Jesus says, judge not, And here's the warning, otherwise you'll be judged. Jesus seems pretty clear, we are not supposed to judge. I mean, over here, the world, over here, the the unbelieving world, the non-Christian will turn to the Christian and say, hey, you can't judge me, Jesus said so. So you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong because Jesus says, do not judge. And over here, in the Christian circles, we have Christians who do not apply this text correctly, who are using that screwdriver wrong to chip away at concrete rather than what it's designed to do and say, well, Jesus says don't judge, and I'm, I just, I can't, everything that talks about judging needs to be submitted to this, so I'm using Scripture to interpret Scripture, so uh, I can't judge. Who am I to uh, judge this other Christian? Is Jesus really excluding all judging in this text? And the answer is no. I'll prove it to you simply. Go down to verse 15. What does Jesus say? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, Jesus is literally calling a human being created in his image a wolf. Seems pretty judgmental of Jesus, even though he just says to judge not. And he's telling us that in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so through their actions, you're going to recognize, is this person a wolf or is this person a sheep? But Jesus said just a few verses before, judge not. Well, on these two ends, the answer is, you're both wrong. Jesus is not talking about all judging. Just to prove it, you can write down John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but this is the words of Jesus, but judge with right judgment. 
Okay. Or even uh, John in his uh, letter, his first letter. But beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are supposed to judge and discern and to test what is being said to us. As my wife and I, back in California, we had these Mormon missionaries come to us, and they, one of their favorite things to do is to say, hey, if you just, and it says in their little, little book of Mormon, it says, hey, if you just pray, if this is true, God will give you a warming of the bosom to see if this is accurate. And I tell them, like, well, hold up. You have this in your Bible. It says, I need to test every spirit. And you're telling me there's a new gospel, yes? And say, yes, well, I need to test this before you tell me what to do. And so let's talk about your prophet, or you're really your false prophet, Joseph Smith. You see how it's, I'm judging right there? Uh, furthermore, Paul even explicitly talks about it in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. He talks about that he, he's not to, for us to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, okay, a professing Christian, who is guilty of sexual morality, greed, idolatry, uh, who's a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a person. He's not talking about all people. He clarifies that in verse 12. For what do... what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. And so right there, Paul even telling the Christians, you need to, we need to judge one another. And so what kind of judgment is Jesus referring to that Jesus is condemning? Jesus is clearly condemning a type of judging. But which one is it? Because it seems contradictory. I can't, I can't figure it out. Well, thankfully, there is more scripture to help illuminate this. If you want to write this down, even turn there with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul lays out this same idea as he's writing the letter to the, the churches in Rome. And he's having the, <clears throat> the, the Jewish Christian mindset. Or even particularly the, the Jew that in Romans 1 and 2, it's oddly familiar to the apocryphal work of Wisdom of Solomon. That isn't scripture whatsoever. But in the Wisdom of Solomon, which is not scripture, is written to the intertestinal period, it talks about how there's the depravity of man. But we Jews are holy. We Jews are, are good, even though we're not perfect. We are better than the world. And so Paul in Romans 1 lays out how the world is condemned. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he talks directly to those who think they are right to condemn the world, but in reality forget that they are condemned as well. Verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, Do not judge, for the judgment you lay will be judged to you. Because what Jesus is speaking to is to the, the, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the Zealots, or even to the, the main Jewish person who thinks they're superior than someone else. The Pharisees who thought themselves superior because of their religious activity. The Sadducees thinking themselves superior because of their political power. The Zealots thinking of themselves superior because of the purity they want to bring to Israel. They're just the typical day Israelite thinking that they themselves are superior than those half-breed Samaritans over here and by far better than those Gentiles over there. When in fact, they actually, the, the sins that they condemn, the world of their, their debauchery, their sexual sin, they're committing themselves. As Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. They might not be outwardly doing it, 
but inwardly they are. So Jesus is attacking the heart. So this is the judgment that Jesus is referring to back in Matthew chapter 7. And what Jesus is saying, as, these, as commentators have rightly pointed out, is that this judging he's talking about, is this judging that judges and is, is, and is critical and it's harsh. It's, it's absolutely harsh. It's self-righteous, thinking that I know what's better than you. I know what's best. And it's merciless. It, it lacks mercy. There's no grace to be given. There's no mercy to be had. Instead, there's just absolute condemnation, quick judgment, and validation that I'm right, and I'm kicking you out. When forgetting, and, and, and when forgetting their own sinful depravity as well. And as D.A. Carson points out, those who judge like this, 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 the critic, the harsh, the self-righteous, the merciless, they will turn be judged. And this is the warning we find in verse 1 and 2. Not by men, because which would be of little consequence. Okay, you judge me, so what? But this judgment will be by God. Which This is what fits, as D.A. Carson says, the solemn tone of this discourse. The disciple, as D.A. Carson says, who takes it on himself to be the judge of what another does, usurps the place of God and therefore becomes answerable to him. When we judge unrighteously, an unrighteous judgment is not what was described earlier in the text. It's that judgment say, you're a sinner and you, I'm, I'm going to send you to hell. I'm going to bring vengeance down. I'm going to bring your punishment. They are usurping the judgment of God because there's only one perfect being that can judge. And that is God. And what those earlier texts refer to is that every type of judgment, as Christians, we're supposed to judge one another. Even with the world, as we look at the world, we're supposed to discern and judge their actions. Well, how am I supposed to calm that? Because you're not submitting to your standard, you see. Judging correctly submits to God's standard. It quickly goes to how does the Bible describe what is going on? What does God have to say for my reaction? What am I supposed to do to the evil that I see before me? When I was wronged or I see someone wronging, what do I do? Instead of turning to my understanding, instead we need to apply Proverbs 3, I needed to lean on the Lord's understanding. And so righteous judgment leans on God and his standard and his instruction, knowing that he is perfect and can see clearly, and refusing to play God. And so with this, as we are called to judge as Christians, but not to judge unrighteously, let's apply this with point number one, judge cautiously. Judge ever so cautiously. With doctors, you know, a bad doctor would give quick and rash prescriptions to the diagnosis that they, they perceive. If they look at it, if, they, if you have a prideful doctor, they're going to look at something and go, I, I, I know what this is. This is, this is simple. I've done this for so many years. I've seen all these cases. This is what you have, and here's your prescription. I don't need to listen to you. Just, just go. A good doctor listens seeks knowledge, just seeks to understand what is going on so that they can actually have a prescription that helps. 
I shared with, this, with the men at the, at the fellowship, but recently I had strep throat. But here in Texas, everyone keep, kept saying, oh, it's probably what? Allergies. There we go. And it wasn't. <laughs> so all the allergy medicine did not help. All I did thought maybe it was a common cold. That medicine didn't help. So I finally went to the doctor. They stuck something up my nose, down my mouth, into my ears. And they said, oh, you have strep throat. Here's a simple antibiotic. I was really appreciative that they took the time to test to see what is true. And guess what? I got better like hours later because of the right prescription. But a bad doctor would look at you and say, hey, you know what? I've seen this before. It's probably cancer. Here's chemotherapy. When all you have is a common cold. That would be just damaging, right? Your body would be destroyed. It's just a common cold. And also it would be bad to say to doctors, like, you know, you're, you're fine. It's just allergies. Here's some Tylenol. When in reality, you do have cancer, which is absolutely dangerous. And so we want, as our doctors, we want them to judge cautiously as when they give our prescriptions. We, too, need to judge cautiously. The danger that Jesus is, is, is addressing is the prideful nature of, the, of us when we judge. It's thinking ourselves superior. But it's remembering texts like this. I mean, this is a text you need to have memorized or a quick reference to. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. When you see the sins of others from the unbelieving world, which they do their thing because of what they believe, and even the sins of the Christian, we have to remember, remember this. And I want to read this to you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not experience God's blessing. Instead, they will experience God's judgment. But this is where verse 11 kicks in. Then this will help us look at their sin rightly. As such were some of you. That list, you can probably think of the 10 other people that fill out the category. What you need to remember is you fit all, a lot of those categories as well. As were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of yourself. Oh wait, no, I misread that, excuse me. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. To judge cautiously is to remember without God, I, I am like them. I can be even worse like them. But with God, I am not because of not anything I'm doing. It's because of what God has done in me and is continually doing. I am fully dependent on Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father to save me. And that right there, remembering that will help you slow down. So when you see someone else's sin that needs to be addressed, you can judge cautiously. I mean, some of us, though, don't think we're that judgy. We, we know that critic over here uh, that's just constantly emailing you or emailing the church or talking about this, who's just out, if you're at Thanksgiving, like, oh, here we go again. There's just, here's the thing on politics once again, or here's another thing on different religions again. Like, oh, that, that person really needed to hear that sermon. Well, did you realize you just judged that person? You know, we need to realize how guilty we are of this. And so to kind of press the point, let's talk about some, some quotes that we might say. How, how do I know I'm a judgy person? Well, when I say things like this, oh, that dumb driver, how dare they cut me off? Lord, I just pray for lightning to strike down just right now and clear a nice path for me to pass by as I wave. Or we might say that like, our government is just full of idiots. 
Or I can't believe our neighbor did this to their house. Or is the, let this be unkept to their house. Or that our life group would be better if our leaders would only just do. If only my children would just be more obedient, I'd be not as quick to anger. If only my spouse would change this about themselves, our marriage would be fixed. Right there is what the judgment that Jesus condemns. Because, more likely, as Romans 2.3, you probably practice the very same thing. But how can we judge correctly? How can we judge cautiously? Well, we can do it this way. Just ask these questions before coming to a conclusion that leads to action. Here's three questions to ask before landing on a conclusion. You see something, you observe something. All right, I gotta process this. What are some questions to process? Okay, you saw something. The first question is, how does the Bible describe what happened? How does the Bible describe what happened? And what you're doing there is that you're subjecting yourself to God's definition of reality rather than the one that you're, you, conjured, you know, conjured. The one that you perceive as real. The one you perceive as real, you can touch, you can feel, you have emotions about it, but we need to subjugate that, knowing that our heart is deceitful, we need to go to the heart of God that is clear. So how does the Bible describe what has happened? And here's some helpful texts that you're going to actually read in life groups this week. Ones that I have to live by. These are lifelines. Proverbs chapter 18, so there's three, three verses I want to read to you real quick. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 13, verses 15, verses 18. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 13, verses 15, verses 17. Verse 13, if, the one, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. How often we see something or hear about something, we're quick, quick to jump on it. And then there's more information that was actually pretty readily available. We're like, and I feel like a fool. Yeah, that's why Proverbs says, slow down. Listen before you speak. Verse 18, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seek knowledge. You might think, you actually might be right on some of your conclusions, but a wise person's like, I'm just going to make sure there's nothing there. I want to turn over every little stone, I want to open, turn, go under every little leaf to figure out what is actually going on so that I can make the right prescription. And then finally, 1817, and this one, man, this one's going to change your life. The one who states their case first seems right until the other comes and examines. What are those he said, she said arguments? I can't believe this person did this. Well, I'm talking to you. Can I talk to the other person? Because maybe they have some different details. My spouse did this. Well, I'm going to turn to you and go, okay, what happened? Well, actually, it was this. Okay, turn to you what happened. Because you're trying to figure out what actually happened so you know what to do. So here's th those are three verses to help you think, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? And they'll guard you from falling. Next question to ask is, am I upset because God's reputation is on the line? Or what I wanted did not happen? Is God's reputation on the line? Or is it just that I wanted something to happen and it didn't happen? AKA is like, why am I critical right now? Why am I critical? Is it because of God? Or is it because of me? What you're doing is subject, subjecting yourself to match God's concerns, matching your concerns to be God's concerns so that you never fail and never fall into your concerns versus making sure that's God's concerns. Excuse me. Third question, how would God want me to proceed? 
How will God want me to proceed? Subjecting myself, ourselves, to God's instruction rather than what I think. Remember it says God said, do not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Why? Because we are just out of control. We will take justice if someone hurt my son and my wife. I would take justice way too far. I would go so far that now all of a sudden I'm committing sin because I want the vengeance of you harming my child or harming my wife. I can't control it. But know who's in perfect control? God. And he'll give perfect judgment. He'll never, he won't go too far and he won't go too little. God. And so God has given us specific instructions to different circumstances that we, we face so that we trust in him. And those questions will help keep you from stepping into unrighteous judgment and keep you in righteous judgment. <clears throat> As a reminder, this is what Jesus is focusing on. He's, he's condemning, the focus of this text is he's condemning unrighteous judgment. But with that, he gives us instruction. So the primary is saying, stop doing this. And by doing so, he actually lays out instructions of actually how to do it. And that's found in verses 3. So let's jump back to Matthew 7, beginning in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And the speck, I mean, any speck in your eye, you just be frantically getting water in your eyes, scratching it out. No, it's like a small piece of wood. There's something still to be taken out, something to be addressed. But Jesus says, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. It's, like, it's not a two by four. This is a giant you know, wooden plank. It's like having one of those beams up above us, like just stuck in your eye. And you're trying to help someone, you're whacking, it, whacking them with a the beam. You're not going to be very helpful. And so just Jesus is playing on words right here. He continues to play on words. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I mean, look at the humor here. He said, look, look how ridiculous you are. And in actually Luke 6, he, he kind of clarifies it further. It's like, you're blind. How can a blind person lead another blind person? You're both going to fall off the cliff. You think you're superior? Think, I, hey, I'm, I'm less blind even though I don't see. But I'm less blind than you, so let me help you as I'm blind. And then we walk off the cliff together. What this is, is it's a hypocrisy. Not recognizing your blindness to help someone that's blind is, is hypocrisy, hence verse 5. You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, notice the focus. He's, he's saying you're ridiculous. For you to just to judge others without addressing your own sin, you're absolutely ridiculous. Look how, look how foolish you are. But also in the side, what Jesus is doing, he's laying out the path of how actually how to do it. Thankfully, praise the Lord. But with, with taking the log out of our own eye, as Jesus is attacking the hypocrisy of people not practicing what they're preaching, as he later addresses in Matthew 23, that, that take the log out, it requires humility. A humility that comes out through personal repentance. What godly repentance looks like, you can jot down two, two passages. One, Psalm 51, I mean all of it. But particularly, verses 16 and 17, where David says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. But instead, the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's what God desires. And then the second way that the Bible describes godly repentance, the real repentance that actually helps you get the log out of your own eye, is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. A godly grief 
leads to salvation. How? Well, verse 11, it's this earnestness that is produced in us, an eagerness to clear ourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, at every point trying to prove ourselves innocent in the matter. Not innocent in the sense that I didn't commit it. Say, no, 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 I'm repentant. I, I, I gave in, yes, but I'm running the opposite direction. I'm turning to the Lord. See how God has changed me. I'm running away. And so that's the godly humility that we need to take the log out of our own eye. And then finally, what Jesus is also addressing is, yeah, there's things that need to be addressed. If you see a twig in your friend's eye, I hope you don't go, hold up, I, I can't help you. I really need to, I, need, I, I just can't. Well, no, what is the instruction that Jesus gives in, 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 in verse 5? They actually take it out. And so there is instruction to take out the speck. And it's for the purpose of that, that sin is, to be, is the, for the person to be restored from their sin. And so what really Jesus is attacking here is to rid of our self-righteousness so that we can actually address other people's sins that we are called to do in a manner that God desires and brings him glory through their redemption. And so for point number two, it's judge humbly. Judge humbly. The person that Jesus is is talking to in, in, in us in turn is someone that isn't humble that's blind to our own sin. Here's two examples in Scripture. Someone who, who judged so quickly, but were so blind to their, their own sin. Uh, first was David. I remember his great sin. He stole another man's wife, committed adultery, plotted to have him murdered. Really, that's two death penalties on his head. And he hid it. And in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 through 8, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and gives him, like, hey, there's an issue. Some man had, a, had, a, had a, one sheep, and this other man who had plenty of sheep wanted to provide a meal. So instead of you know, sacrificing his, from his plenty, he took this man's only sheep. And then David, in verse 5, was greatly enraged. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die, who stole this family's only sheep and then has plenty of sheep over here. This man deserves to die and restore this man fourfold for the things as he has done. And because he had no pity, you know what, remember what Nathan said, who knows your Bibles? He turns to him and said, you are that man. That's what happens. We are, we are quick to criticize. We are quick to judge others. And, and with disregard of handling our sin, we need to have a mirror and we need to point to ourselves and say, you are that person too. And that's where David repents. Furthermore, there's the rich man in Luke 18, the rich man who, who trusted in himself that they were righteous, but he treated others with contempt. And I mean, this parable has been addressed over and over and over in, in his pulpit, but it, it's so profound and helpful. You have a, a self-righteous Pharisee who comes in and is pointing to this guy in the back, this tax collector, and he's saying, I'm so glad I am not like this person. I give, I'm sacrificial, I'm just so holy. And then God says, yeah, that guy ain't righteous. Only one person's left righteous, and that's the guy in the back beating his chest, recognizing his sin. And so we need to make sure we are not like the, the Pharisee in the Jesus' parable. We've got to make sure we're not David when we condemn others. We need to recognize that we are more blind than we think. How do I know I'm blind? When we say phrases like, I'm only here in this, in this counseling meeting, I'm only here to meet with you guys so that you can fix her or him. 
Or even you say, I'm very concerned about so-and-so and, and their sin when you forget you're committing the same thing earlier that week. I, you say things like, I'm so much better in my faith now. Unlike this person over here is just really struggling. I'm much better because I've done, I put in the hard work to change. There is hard work that is in the Christian life, but it's paired with knowing that it's the Holy Spirit who actually gives us the strength to do it. And so I'm thinking I'm better than the other person because of what I did instead of knowing that it was God in me. And when someone says, this person was so wrong on how they approached me about this, I can't believe they said that. When there's actually some validation to what they're saying. And maybe they did respond to you wrongly, but in, in their wrong response, you wrongly responded as well. Sometimes we're too blind. And so how can we address other people's sins without being blind? Here's four, four quick steps. First, keep God at the center. Keep God on the center, at the center, excuse me, because he will guard yourself from yourself. When you really want to jump in in like a WWE wrestler and just do that elbow pile drive in that person, it'll slow you down and go, hold, hold up. I need to check myself before I wreck myself. Number two is you need to deal with yourself first. There is someone's sin that is sin. It put Jesus on the cross. It needs to be dealt with. But we have to be careful because if we do not deal with ourselves first, we are going to come in as if we are gone, raining down lightning bolts on this person, when in reality, we need to do something else, which is the next two steps. So, but one, we need to make sure we deal with ourselves first. We need to recognize, without Christ, I'm just like this person. Without Christ, I do the same thing. But with Christ, and only with Christ, can I overcome my sin. So I have to humbly recognize, without Jesus, I'm hopeless. And because of Jesus, I actually hope. I have no hope in myself, only in Jesus. And so when I deal with my sin first, as I approach a brother and sister in their sin, or as I evangelize to the lost, I can recognize I am in no better boat. I'm only in a better boat because of someone else. Pull me into the boat. Third step is to gently engage. Gently engage. Again, we are still called to address the sins of others. And what we'll get to in, in, in later in the text is, okay, I need to address sin right now, but is this really evangelism or is this discipleship? And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in verse 6. But the fourth step is aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. When we are critical, when we're merciless, when we're self-righteous, it, it, all we want is vengeance, all we want is, is our vindication for people to see how I am right in everything that I feel and say and do. I, it's really, you want total victory for yourself. Instead, God says, no, 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 no. It's about my justice. It's about my mercy. And it's about my victory to see this person, the sinner, redeemed. Either into salvation or into sanctification. Anytime we're, we're addressing someone's sins that we are called to do, the aim is restoration. You can jot down Galatians 6, 1 through 2. I'd like to read it to you guys real quick. Because this is the restoration that we need to have in mind. When we see sins, right here, verse, verse 1 of chapter 6 of Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And here's some further humility. Keep watch on yourself, 
lest you too be tempted. So when you're talking to someone about their anger, you got to be careful. You might get angry. When you're talking about someone about their, their lust, their, their pornography use, or their, their small little moves of adultery, you got to be guarded for yourself that you don't commit the same sin. When you're talking about their greed or their way of just fleeing from the problem, you got to make sure. i got to make sure I'm not doing the same thing. But in verse 2, I need to bear the other person's burden so to, to fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ being to love one another. And so we are aiming for restoration, not vengeance. And the implication of this is that this will bring just amazing, amazing harmony into your home. If we're, we're doing this in our home with our spouses and our kids, this will bring harmony that is really unexplainable. It will bring harmony within this church. And then the world will look at us and going, you guys are from different backgrounds. You guys are actually in conflict, but how do you resolve it? How are you able to do this? You say, I'm, I'm being humble because of one who saved me. But there's verse 6 that we need to talk about. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, because it's like the previous two verses, we can actually misapply this. We can misapply taking the speck out of people's eyes, not only waste time, but really also be in the line of facing harm ourselves that Jesus is going to address. And this is where it gets fun. Let's look at verse 6 together. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And you're thinking, what on earth is he talking about? How is this even connected? Is it connected? Is this kind of his little like, oh, I forgot to say something? Like, what is Jesus doing here? I, I, after studying this, I firmly believe that Jesus is helping us understand the, the gray world that we live in. There's, there's, there's black and white sin issues, but there's this, this awful gray, this foggy gray that we have to navigate. And really what Jesus is doing, going, okay, I have a general direction of where I'm going in this fog. I need my map ever so in front of me to make sure I don't go off the path. And I don't get lost. So let's break down what Jesus is talking about. The dog, I mean, I love dogs. I really do. If I had more, if I was at home more, I'd have like 20. But I don't have any because I'm not at home much. My wife and I were always around, running around, hanging out with you guys. But it's not the sweet pet that we love and we let them lick their face and cuddle with us in our bed. No, this is the, the mangy, trash-eating, violent vermin. This picture of a dog is, don't think of Fluffy. Put Fluffy aside. That dog you kind of get scared of when it barks at you, that, that's the dog, but worse. The, the dogs of, the, of, of the Jesus' time would live in the garbage heaps. That's what they would eat. They would eat the trash. And they would, they're known to attack and attack people. I mean, think about when uh, back in the Old Testament, when Jezebel was, was killed and God's judgment was placed on her, she was thrown out of the window and, and, her, and because of her evilness and she splatted on the floor. But what happened to her? God said, dogs will eat her so that there's no grave, so no one would remember her. Like, this is where Jezebel is. It's humiliating. And so this is the dog you need to think about. It ain't no friendly fluffy. It's a ravenous dog. Now, now the pigs, I mean, they're not nearly as cute as a dog. Some are. Some are tasty as well. But at this time, remember, they're unclean. 
Why? Because they, they love their filth. They roll in their filth. They live in their filth. They eat filth. And so God in, in Old Testament law said, you know, this is a, like many animals. This one's unclean to help show you that you are a separate people. You're not one who lives in the filth. Instead, you're one who lives in the cleanliness. And so this is what you need to think of is that this unclean animal, according to the law, that it's filthy and a lover of their own mess. Now, but Jesus isn't talking about just animals here. He's talking about types of people. Again, he's judging He's talking about the dog. This is the evil and perverse, even sexually perverse person who just attacks the flock of God. Their life school is just, I'm going to attack anyone who approaches me. The pig is one who is just unclean, who can't approach God and does not want to. They want to live in their filth. They don't want to be ever clean. And what you need to understand is that both of these people are separated from God. So they're unbelievers. So he's talking about unbelievers, but not just any unbelievers. He's talking about obstinate people toward God. People who profess to say they're followers of God, who deceive the thing they're saved, unbelievers, or people who are saying, I want nothing of God. If you come near me, I'll bite. So this is who Jesus is talking about. And so what does he mean, like what is holy? Commentators go back and forth on what this is, but I'm, I, what I believe what he's talking about here is the, the holy meat, so you don't want to toss holy meat before a dog. But remember, what is the holy meat? It's the meat that's brought for sacrifice. It's the, it's the perfect animal without blemish that is brought before the priests to help either one, make me clean before God to be able to be with his people and be really in his presence, but also to atone for my sin. This meat means something. Not only is the best of it burnt before God as a pleasing aroma, it's also to feed the priests. So this is something that's supposed to be handled with care, handled with reverence. And furthermore, it points to a sacrifice to come for sins, which really points to Christ, the sacrifice for our sins. It's set aside. And so we're not supposed to give dogs that will give no thought to what they consume. When a priest is eating the meat, they're thinking, this is a sacrifice. This is holy. A dog is going to eat it without, without thought, just like they eat you know, a child's toy. They're not going to appreciate the consecrated thing and what it's pointing toward. Further, the pig, you don't want to toss a, a pearl before a pig. Now, a pearl's a little bit more accessible to us these days, but pearls are very, very, very unaccessible. You had to go to great lengths to find a pearl, and they were considered very, very valuable. And so Jesus is saying, don't throw a pearl to a pig as you, like food. Because they're going to look at it, they're going to go, what is this? And then, as he says, turn and attack you. They're going to trample it, something that's valuable, that takes a great sacrifice to get. And they're going, I don't care, I'm going to trample this, I'm going to attack you too. You know, here in Texas, we know about wild pigs a little bit, right? I mean, you get to get paid to go, like, destroy some of them. And so these are the things. We don't want to give our iPhones to the wild hogs in Texas because they're going to look at it and go, I have no recollection of what this is. Like, this is a very expensive piece. This is a $1,000 phone. They're like, what's a dollar? And they're going to just turn and attack you. And so what Jesus is saying is they don't waste your time on certain people. There are people that Jesus is saying that we are not supposed to continually engage with because we have to remember, do we save ourselves? No. Do we save other people? No, only God saves. Only God saves. 
Now, God uses means like us to do his plan of salvation, like us sharing the gospel. But is it us that was really powerful, that got the person's heart to change? No, 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 no. It's God using us to change that person's heart. And so any engagement you have with someone, either in evangelism or in in correction in their faith, or your disengagement with someone, all of it is pointing to one thing, that God is needed for deliverance. And that's why with church discipline, what is the end result if, if someone is unrepentant, what is the end result? It's brought before the church to do what? To call them to repent, and if they refuse to repent, we say we can't associate with them. Why? Because then we're hoping that this isolation, this, this separation from God's people would be a small taste of hell that they're going to experience if they're unrepentant. And hopefully that, that, that reality says, I need to turn back and repent back to God. And see, it's even the disengagement and the engagements are all pointing toward you need to be delivered by God. To quote Jay Adams, a renowned biblical counselor, he says this quote, neither the dogs nor pigs will appreciate what you have done. You won't gain anything by your gifts. They won't, sorry, you won't gain anything by, by your gifts. Neither will they thank you for the precious gift of, nor glorify God. So Jesus was saying you should not attempt to remove the specks of the eyes of the unbeliever. You'll only unnecessarily aggravate them. They will not appreciate this. You'll lose your witness to them. It is not your task to reform unbelievers. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Your task with unbelievers is never to counsel, but only to pre-counsel them. That is, to evangelize to them. So we need to spend our time with the whole spec thing that Jesus talks about, correcting believers. But when we see an unbeliever, we need to evangelize to them and witness to them, to the one that needs deliverance. And so for the third point today is to judge wisely. Judge wisely. If you see a fire, what is, one, what is the most common way we should put it out? With? Not if it's a grease fire. Not if it's an electrical fire. Actually, if you put water on a grease or an electrical fire, you'll make the fire even worse. You're quick to say water, but not, not every, to put out fire, water's not the only solution. And sometimes it's the absolute opposite solution. You need a fire extinguisher. You need a carbon dioxide extinguisher. You need a fire blanket. You need something else. Baking soda for a grease fire. Well, for small ones at least. And so it's knowing how to address the fire. Knowing how to address the sin. And this is something not new. And this is where this, is where the, this passage is hard because it's forcing us to, in the reality that we're in, that it's just gray as can be. It's gray. I want it to be more simple. I'm like, I, I don't know what to do here, God. And God say, it's okay. Let me help you. Let me acknowledge the reality that you're in, but also let me know that, hey, this is making you turn to me all the more. Here's um, a few Proverbs that, that prove that God calls us to engage wisely. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teaching a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. You see right there that we're also to not waste our time in certain areas. 
Proverbs 23, 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Proverbs 29, verse 9. If a man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Or my favorite proverb that just describes the gray reality that we're in, Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You're going, well, which one do I do? The point is, it drives you to our knees and drives us to his word. Say, God, what do you want me to do? How, do you, how are you describing the situation so that I may know how to proceed? So here's four, four quick, quick ways you can judge wisely. First one, have the attitude to be ready to engage everyone and anyone. Have the attitude to be, to, to be ready to engage everyone or anyone. And Jesus is not saying don't talk to, just, don't talk to anybody. What he's saying is address them accordingly. Again, like the unbeliever, we're called to evangelize to them. We're supposed to love them, but we're also supposed to evangelize to them. Giving them biblical wisdom on marriage will help for up to a point. But eventually, because they lack the spirit, they'll never persevere in it. And then really, I just, I just created a legalist. This person, even though I will help an unbeliever say, this is what the Bible says about marriage, and this is the way that God designed it for us to live in harmony. And sure, the practice might be helpful for you, but this is what's followed up. But you need to repent. Because this will be all for naught if you, if you don't have God's spirit in you. So the first step before even having a holy marriage is that you need to become holy yourself. And that's the repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone for your, for your salvation. The, the second step as we, as we move forward is to discern if this engagement is to counsel or evangelize. Discern if this engagement is to counsel or to evangelize. Again, our instructions to one another as believers is to live for Christ. Here's the sinful habit you need to get rid of. Here's the righteous habits you need to put on because I know you have the Holy Spirit in you and he is giving you the strength and power to live it out. But for the unbeliever, I'm saying, hey, you need to surrender to Christ. You won't be able to do this. You might be able to build some habits for, us for a while, but eventually you'll stumble and fall. And actually, as we'll study later in Matthew, if it's like a demon left the home and it was all tidied up and, and Christ is not in there, guess what happens? The demon comes back with seven more and it's actually worse off than it was before. That's the life of an unbeliever as they try to live out spiritual habits without the Holy Spirit. And so I need to make sure I'm evangelizing, calling them to repent and trust. But also it leads to point, uh, step number three, disengage when needed and leave them to God. Sometimes we want to engage all the more. Say, I, know, I, need, I just need to keep going, I need to keep going. Well, then who are you relying on? Are you relying on yourself or are you relying on God to deliver them? And this is not foreign to God. Obstinate resistance will be followed up by God. And so we need to let God be God and we need to move on because that is his instruction. They're going to get it. The disciples will get it in a few chapters later. In Matthew 10, 14 to 15, if anyone, as he sends out the disciples to, to evangelize, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, again, they're engaging with them, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it'd be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than that for that town. And when Jesus is saying, you engage, but there's a time to disengage and leave them to me. Because really, that's the whole, whole purpose for the whole time. And also, there's three times in Acts where the, actually, this is played out. 
three different times in Acts. And for the sake of time, I would have you write down Acts chapter 13, verses 14, sorry, 44 to 46. Acts 13, 44 to 46, where on the Sabbath, you know, Paul is evangelizing to the Jewish people in the synagogue, but then they started contradicting him, what he was saying, and reviling him. And so him and Barnabas spoke out saying, hey, it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first, again, engaging, but since you thrust it aside like a pig and a dog, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see right there, eventually in our engagement, even with our evangelism or with someone who we think is a believer and then their sin, and yet they're refusing to repent. So we bring a couple witnesses and yet they're refusing to repent and then we bring it before the church and then they refuse to repent. You see how the opposite saying, you know, okay, we have to engage and we're giving you to the Lord and our prayers for both the unbeliever and the professing believer is that you repent and the, and the fourth step is this look for the next person look at the example in Acts 13 they said hey we're done with you and they turned around and said hey do you know about Jesus look for the next person because the problem is if we keep wasting our time with those who are obstinate towards Christ, we are missing the people that God has placed right here who are ready to hear, who are ready to turn. So judge wisely. I really have grown to, to love you guys. Love you guys as my church. It's been so encouraging for us to see your guys' desire to say, hey, I, I want to follow Christ better. I recognize I'm not perfect and I, I need help. Can you, can you counsel me? Can you disciple me? Can you help me? Even in the ups and downs and, and within our own sin, I, I, love seeing, I love seeing how you guys are desire to follow him and, and how much you're desiring to seek to conform your lives to him. And so let this text help you in your journey to guard yourself from your, any self-righteousness or any knowledge to puff you up so that you don't fall into unrighteous judgment. Instead, that you can continue to walk in the will of the Lord to get out of God's throne and to address people's sins humbly according to God's standards and instruction and continue to judge cautiously, to judge humbly, and to judge wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As painful sometimes that it is, and it feels hurtful, Lord, it is helpful. You're correcting us, reproving us, Lord, so that, Lord, we may reflect who you are rightly. So God, help us to live for your Son, Jesus Christ. That your Holy Spirit, that it is in us believers to, to, to turn away from our sinful habits of our, of our unrighteous, critical judging and instead turn to you, the perfect judge, and to trust in you, the perfect judge. And God, help us to be used by you to help our fellow brothers and sisters to repent from the sin and move forward in Christ. And Lord, to help those image bearers, those lost image bearers, to repent and place their salvific trust in you. So God, help us to trust you as a church. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.